Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website, located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community, because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm here with Dominique Vale who is the founder of Invisi Youth Charity, which is an organization that uh, provides support for teenagers and young people who are living with chronic and invisible illness. And it was inspired by her own experience as a teenager with invisible illness. And Dominique is going to tell us all about that. She um, lives with RSD, which is also known as CRPS. Uh, she's also got scoliosis tachycardia, and undiagnosed EDS, which is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, for those of you who aren't familiar. So, Dominique, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and that awesome intro. I appreciate it. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. It's so wonderful to have people on the show who are also working in the advocacy space, and I can't wait to hear more about all of your experience with that. Um, But just to get us started, why don't you tell us about when and how you first realized that you had invisible illness. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I can take you back. It'll be a decade now since I'm 26, and this happened a few weeks before my 16th birthday. But um, I was a competitive tennis player for a little over eight years. Um, So that's pretty much about like four or five hours of training about five days a week for those extended periods of time. So naturally as a competitive athlete, you put a lot of strain and wear and tear on your body. And um, right before I turned 16, I got injured in off season training with one of my coaches um, in my left hand through a tennis injury, which is my dominant side as well. And it sort of felt like a pop within my joint when I was doing um, a shot on the court with him. And it sort of became like this engulfing burning throughout my hand And on my end, I always say that sort of like the last time I was really able to play tennis was from that moment. I didn't obviously know that at the time, but that's where it would sort of lead. And my mom is a nurse of over 35 years. So she right away was able to sort of check and examine my hand and call my orthopedic doctor at the time. And he got to see me right away and did x-rays and thought it was a case of tendinitis and sort of sent me off with a script for physical therapy right away. 
And I always felt really ominous about that because as an athlete who had gotten injured so often, I knew that um, I had tendonitis about four times prior to it in different parts of my body. And I knew that this was something visibly that even looked different than what I had had before. And sort of fast forward a week and clearly I was right. So my left hand at that point was about three times the size. It was navy blue um, throughout the whole thing. Yeah, not a very pretty picture. <laughs> <laughs> not the uh, that's the very visible part that happened um for sure and um yeah it was sort of the visible sensation was at least the most minimal part of it physically it felt like the best explanation I was an English major in college later on so naturally my language is more flowery um but it felt like my hand was sort of being crushed with burning coals and sort of being pushed with barbed wire consistently when I was trying to have clothes put onto it or moving my fingers, um, I was having a really hard time with it. So when I went back to my doctor, he was confused, did more tests and said, oh, I think this is RSD and we'll just sort of send you with more physical therapy. Um, so that what RSD stands Sure, I can, yes, absolutely. So the, the medical terminology on that end is reflex sympathetic dystrophy. It's also known as CRIPS, which is chronic regional pain syndrome. So it's a type of condition which affects your sympathetic nervous system, which is sort of the sensory level of your nerves, which is where you feel pain and touch. And like all nervous systems, it goes through a circuit. So with your sympathetic nerves with an injury, it goes through the response of knowing there's an injury, the physical response of injury, and then it completes the circuit by healing. And it goes through that. So when you have RSD, you provide a gap in that circuit. So it goes through injury and goes to connect for the healing process, but there's a gap in that circle. So then it reverts back and continues to re-injure your body and that point of it because it assumes that there is a still an injury there because that damage has been done. Wow. So um, it can kind of range from just typical nerve pain, um, burning sensations, muscle spasms, um, vascular damage, which is what I had, which caused the very um, pronounced bruising, um, temperature changes between burning and freezing. That's very noticeable to the touch. Um, loss of mobility and all of that. So it can really stem in terms of how it is for different people. Um, so on my end, I was 15 turning 16. And because he was not my doctor at that point, wasn't very sure what was going on. I kind of had what's now is sort of the revolving door of doctors. Everybody had their colleague who was a specialist in a different type of psychology and wanted me to be tested by them because they felt there was this underlying condition um, of going through physical therapy for three or four hours a day after school because I was very adamant on my and I wanted to try and stay in high school at that point um, and not have to leave. So I was going in and out of class and sort of being there for part of the day and leaving or coming back in after doctors and tests and procedures. And more doctors I would go to said, well, we know you have RSD, but there's something else here because you're not responding to physical therapy any longer. Um, it was considerably getting worse and worse. Um, so at that point, I had them trying to do different tests to sort of help relieve the pain and the muscular spasms that were happening. Because at that point, I was starting to lose mobility in my hand because the swelling was so pronounced, I couldn't even bend my fingers. Um, so to stay in school, I taught myself to be right-handed. So now it's a fun party trick that I'm ambidextrous, but it was strictly out of necessity. It was um, me going, I had um, nerve um, blocks done, which are called like stellate ganglion nerve blocks. So they would take a needle through the base of my throat and thread it down my left arm um, to block off the sympathetic nerves. 
Um, so I had two of those done. Neither of those were successful. And if you have RSD, that really is sort of one of the biggest ways of gaining relief. I had less than 48 hours before my symptoms came fully back. Um, so at that point, my doctors were sort of grasping at straws because they didn't know why it was months and months and there was no um, return of success at that point. So on my end, staying in school and having to bounce between doctors and school at the same time, it was sort of that medical struggle of trying to maintain both worlds at the same time and sort of leading out of that, I noticed um, my mom and sort of the rest of my family as well noticed I started to become more shifted. So my shoulders, I looked hunched. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had scoliosis growing up. My sister and I both do um, just minor scoliosis, which a lot of young people have. Mm -hmm. And so we assumed that it was probably just becoming more visibly pronounced. I went back to my scoliosis doctor and he said, well, I, I say unfortunately, because at that point I was only five feet tall. So that was unfortunate on my end. And I had fully grown at that point, unfortunately, as well. So I had grow my growth plates were visible on a scan. So they knew I wasn't going to um, physically grow anymore. So my spine shouldn't shift. So I had a 14 degree curve. And when he scanned, he did an x ray and he brought it in, he put them side by side and lit the screen up. And so he he looked very confused because I was 35 weeks later, I went to a spinal specialist and I was over 55 degrees within five weeks. Oh so yeah, so on that scan, my hips actually started to become off centered. So as my high school friends joked, I had an official gangster lip wa limp walking around because my legs were about an inch off from each other. And so that I my spine would sort of curve into my shoulder and curve out. Um, so I had to have spinal correction infusion surgery, which I did leading into my junior year of high school. Um, so my whole, most of, majority of my spine, T2 to L5, for all of you people who've had spine surgeries, you know where all that is. I have titanium rods and screws um, through majority of my spine for that. And so that surgery went, yeah, so at that point we um, thought maybe there was, I had more testing done, assuming that I might've had morphine syndrome, something in that realm, everything came back negative. Um, and then right before I started my seat, my junior year of high school, after my surgery, I woke up one morning and I had these um, red patches of bruising on my left foot and the pain was very similar. So at that point, I had assumed that the RSD had gravitated and um, moved to another part of my body. So within a week, um, I wasn't able to fit any shoes, even flip-flops on my left foot. It was navy, blue, purple. Um, I couldn't put any weight on. It was frozen. Um, the temperature discrepancies between my limbs at that point was about 25 degrees different, which is just unheard of. Yeah. Um, so it was colder than ice, just mostly touching me on my left side always. Um, and so when I went to, um, my internist at that point, who was doctor number 21, um, he knew right away, he said, well, if with RSD, if you don't get proper treatment, it can start to spread and just gravitate to other parts of your limbs. Um, so at that point he took my medical chart home and was sort of researching through it and talking to his colleagues and assumed I had a connective tissue disorder from everything that was going on with my spine shifting and I was having random stretch marks on my body, which nobody knew or could equate to. I wasn't, I didn't have any dramatic weight loss or gain through that whole process as well. So he assumed, um, suggested I go to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for genetic counseling and through those connections, that team over there at CHOP then led me to their RSD specialist they have there and got me into having an, an appointment with him 
um, instead of going down the connective tissue route to try and resolve the RSD. And by that point, I was a senior in high school, and it had spread into the left side of my neck and head as well. So um, cognitively, from like light and vision, I would lose my vision on the left side and black out. Um, like sensory sounds would just be like burning. I was starting to have a lot of brain fogging. So I would be listening and forgetting things. Um, and sort of my left side of my neck and head, if I turned sideways, it was just swollen going up into my head. So trying to taking SATs and doing all of that. Yeah, I'm trying to take testing and I didn't have accommodations for those testing just because that whole process is very challenging to gain as well. Um, so I did majority of the writing portion of my SATs right-handed. So that was interesting. Um, <laughs> that was where it came in handy. Um, so, um, I ended up going through that whole process with, um, the doctors at CHOP and they had realized that my current physical therapists and doctors were only really treating the muscular side of RSD and they weren't actually doing proper physical therapy for me all those years. Um, and so for his end, he sort of disregarded there was, we can worry about there being connective tissue and something else later. You have to be in proper physical therapy treatment for someone with neuromuscular issues and nerve damage. Um, so that was about two and a half years after my injury. Um, and so I went through that, my physical therapists at home. They were sort of my, my Bonnie and Clyde, the two of them, as I said, they really um, kind of took me under their wing and learned the whole program, spoke to the physical therapist there. So um, they would have, I was putting things in rice buckets and doing pinching exercises with towels and um, rubbing ice cubes on my limbs for sensory um, like reversion. So my nerves would realize that those weren't um, acts of injury. It was just normal sensory issue to retrain your nervous system to complete the gap again. Um, so I was going through that whole process um, at that point, applying to college at the same point, I had been in physical therapy about two and a half or three years. Um, my health insurance told me I had plateaued. So they stopped covering insurance. My while uh, my mom and had was working with the health insurance end of it to try and get it back, um, I had a guidance counselor in high school who had his own health struggles, and he suggested if I give acupuncture a try um, at that point to try and help with anything in terms of just sort of the pain relief um, for something. So I was a little apprehensive, but at that point, I really didn't have any other options. So I was going to go for anything. Um, for me, it was sort of the best um, nervous decision I ever made. Wow. The acupuncturist I went to researched RSD. She had multiple sessions just testing needles at different parts of my body, how I responded to different types of needles, everything, um, and really went through sort of my physical um, chemistry of how it would work with my body and really tailored her acupuncture to what my body could handle and what I needed from not curing RSD, but more helping with the secondary side effects of bruising and swelling and muscle spasms so that she was able to kind of relieve the second end of everything that was happening with my chronic illness at that point. Um, because um, on that end, it was really wonderful. My doctors, a lot of times, they because it's integrative medicine, they kind of rolled their eyes a little bit and said, well, it won't kill you, so go for it. Um, and after a couple months, I was seeing my the swelling in my limbs was significantly starting to go down. I was having more range of motion. The pain was starting to become more manageable on day to day. 
Um, so then my um, medical team sort of became very proactive with it and brought it into my medical treatment plan. So I was doing home physical therapy while doing acupuncture and cupping as well for releasing muscle spasms. And for it, it was because they were able to sort of see it physically um, of what I was able to do because having with RSD, my symptoms, I said I kind of straddled visible and invisible illness just depending on if my vascular system had ruptured and it, the nervous system had ruptured and I had bruising, it was very apparent what was wrong in my limbs. But on the other side, me having brain fogging or losing my vision, having spasms in my hand, it was not something somebody could see of why I was having issues. So it really, on their end, they were able to notice my sort of functionality was better. So for me, it was a benefit to kind of bridge both of them together. And that at that point, there was nothing they could do but be supportive of pulling the two together to help me um, through that process. Pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. So at that point, it was probably about four years into it, I ended up um, switching to go to a, a different university, my first one. Like many young people with chronic illness, I I was tired of being somebody with a chronic illness. So at 18, I said, I'm going to go to a different university. It was further from home. Um, kind of didn't think about stopping all medical treatment and everything and just went. Um, I didn't have a good living situation. The university wasn't very supportive of my health condition because they couldn't see it, even though I had medical reports from doctors and got accommodations at the school. Um, they didn't see the issue, so they, could, they weren't accommodating to it. My, within two weeks, my, I had made about 40% recovery, and that reverted straight back within two weeks. Um, so I made the decision. Um, I spoke to my doctors, my family, and I had gotten in, accepted originally to St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. Um, and then I, we reached out to them, and they said, well, she can come the second semester. We'll give her the full scholarship she had. Um, if she'll transfer and just wait a semester. So I left within two weeks, went back home. Um, and then I went there and luckily because of being close to home and also being in the Philadelphia area, I was able to sort of maintain my health treatments and going back and forth between school and staying, going home and having acupuncture and everything um, as I sort of phased out of um, what was my new normal, as I said, of sort of medically adaptive. The university was super accommodating. I was very upfront with all of my professors the first week they met me um, because a lot of times they couldn't physically see what was wrong unless I was wearing K-tape or I had a limb or something was going on. They really, especially from a neurological standpoint, had no idea why I would forget conversations while they were happening. Um, or I would be very sensitive to light or sound in the middle of class and get up and come back in just because it was too much of pain for that. Um, so I was very um, much an advocate on that. And that was something from my mom being a nurse. She taught that to my sister and I very early on to um, be the voice with every doctor. And so that was stemmed into, I'm going to advocate for what I need of having recording devices in class and other people taking notes, having extended time if they were written exams, because naturally my hand would lock up. So I would have to switch to other hands or typing exams instead. Um, so they were super. That's, that's incredible that, that you sort of were able to bypass that, that's very steep part of the learning curve of chronic illness, right? Oh, exactly. It hits us. And we don't even know which way is up or who to talk to or how to get the accommodations we need. And the fact that you already had that knowledge, like that insider track because of your mom being Yeah. 
I think that's just incredible. And obviously, yeah, I always say she, my, my mom really was, I mean, in, in personal life, she is sort of my best friend, my better half of, as I always say. So on that end, it was having that trust there, but it was a benefit because a lot of young people will go into a doctor's office or be with a, a professor or a boss and they don't, they don't have that second person there to look to if they're confused about a medical diagnosis or a treatment or an option I knew I didn't have to ask the doctor right away. I could look to my mom and if she nodded her head that she knew what was happening, I could ask her later on if I forgot something. There was somebody there who could remind me. Um, so I had that that medical security net. So for me, I felt I had more of a, I had a security team behind me, if you will, sort of allowing me to be more vocally pleuroactive, which is not a luxury that many people have of sort of learning that advocacy just in general and very, especially in university or when I was looking for jobs and when I built busy youth, I was very vocal of what I physically needed. And if you had issues of not seeing something medically, I would just explain it to you of how it would affect your body medically and sort of in the internal biology of everything. So question about that, was that you would take the time to people, which requires a lot of patience. (laughs) Yes. You know, it makes you a bit of a saint, I would say. (laughs) Was Was it not a traumatic experience having to sort of relive? all of the symptomatic issues? All Abs- yeah, no, definitely. I think um, on my end, it going through it as a latter teen into my early 20s, I definitely from um, an emotional standpoint sort of um, not shut that part off, but just focused and sort of took everything step by step. So um, for me having, I sort of disconnected emotionally from my own health journey just to accept everything moving forward, the career paths that I wanted very quickly. I wanted to try and get scouted for a university and play tennis professionally in my 20s. That sort of dream had to die right away. Um, And going into, I wanted to do philanthropic journalism and travel with NGOs and doing all of that. But medically, that wasn't, it was not going to be helpful for me to be in a third world country and get sick and not be able to go to a hospital um, any longer. So um, it was, I built a different, I, my story felt very second to me. I felt like I was just sort of explaining the narrative of what it was. And when people would ask me, yes, yeah. yeah. And it did. And then, but I always say there's always, there's two sides to it. If you go through the emotional process while it's happening, um, you're, you're, it's, to me, it's one of the worst types of grieving because you have to grieve your old life for my end. I had an injury, somebody else having an illness come on later, and it's not something you're born with. Um, you do have a before and after. So there is a memory of physical health and being quote unquote normal, like everyone else. Um, so you have that memory of what if it could have been like. So you have to really, I had to really go through that process in my later teens of early twenties, a couple years into it of just not accepting things were going to be different, but really kind of grieving my health and moving forward and being proud of the new decisions and new opportunities I was going to have to have. But that's a very long emotional process within yourself, with other people around you. Um, that, that was on my end, having a chronic illness as a teenager, it accelerated the growing up process very quickly. There were conversations of you could have a type of terminal cancer or this diagnosis, this could be fatal. So it was that mortality conversation constantly being brought up. So for me, it was, I 
it was important for me to kind of focus in and have to handle everything. So you grow up very quickly. So when I hit that new normal, I was able to then discuss my health with other people. But I did make it, like you said, a disassociated narrative because I would explain what I was comfortable publicly saying. But then there was a different emotional side of it that my my family, my very close friends were able to know different parts of what I personally had gone through, bad experiences within the medical community, more bad than good, unfortunately, on my side of it. And a lot of, I, I always say I never met or spoke to anyone with a chronic illness or an invisible illness until I launched Invisi Youth when I was 22. Um, nobody, I had only healthy, able-bodied friends. So I had no one who understood what I was going through and had to be sort of a lot of my friends disconnected immediately. Um, they didn't understand what was going on. I didn't have a traditional illness like cancer or diabetes, which is more media friendly and is more conversationally known. So a lot of my friends backed off because they didn't know what was happening. Um, a lot of my other friends made it sort of the butt of the joke because it was something visibly they couldn't see. So I, I'm naturally a very sarcastic person. So my sort of my dark humor kind of, I said my, my comedic skills got heightened when I got um, chronically ill because naturally. How many people are on the show who have said develop a sense of her and how important that is? Oh, 100%. Yeah, my, my humor is massively sarcastic and dark. And people in the health community, it's flying colors. My healthy, able-bodied friends are like, can I laugh at that? Um, so, always. But it, it was definitely from the invisible illness side. I, you had to, I always had to be trained to explain everything to people because there was never a moment of someone going, oh, I get it. I never had anyone get it. So for me, it was the constant explanation. I had to be the verbal pro. I always say it's proactive with your health, not reactive. When it's a visible illness or a visible disability, you get to be very reactive because everyone sees and you have to react to that response. But when it's invisible illness, you have to be proactive and constantly verbalizing. This is what I can and cannot do. This is what's wrong inside my body. So there's just different forms of how you get to communicate with people. Now, I, I want to definitely go into talking more about Invisben mm-hmm. and how you found the work that you do for yourself. But before we get into that, there's still half of your medical journey that we haven't covered. <laughs> I'd love for you to tell us about um, the rest of your your medical chart, if you will. Sure, yeah, yeah. As, as I went into one doctor one time, I went out with my medical chart, which was quite large, multiple inches, and there was another patient next to me who was about, she was an older woman, like 80, 85. She saw my chart, which could eat her chart multiple times over. It was so big. And she looked at mine, looked at her little chart, and put her hand on me and went, Oh my God, honey, I am so sorry. Uh, I just laughed and I said, Oh, well, I said, I said, I don't know what size mine's going to be by the time I make it to your age. And so she laughed. Um, I said, they're going to need to give me a whole like shelf at that point. Name a room, give me a shelf. Um, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, definitely when I, um, probably around the time I graduated from college when I was about 22, 23, um, my, yeah, around the same time, ironically, I think because I had gotten so used to my new normal and how my nerve damage affected my left side, there were sort of small things popping up throughout those years that occasionally would happen. I had muscular spasms in my throat. 
Um, if I was trying to eat different things, my f- muscles would sort of irre- irregularly react and they would lock around food and I couldn't breathe. Um, and then you would have to wait until my sensory nerves knew, oh, okay, she was trying to swallow something. And then they would open up. Um, I would have sort of some bouts of tachycardia where I would be laying in bed. I would get up and I was immediately winded without moving. Um, Can you tell us what tachycardia is? Sure. Tachycardia is like an irregular heartbeat. Um, so basically on my end, um, if I was sitting, you would have a normal resting heart rate. I would sort of turn my head to one side and I would go from a resting of like 80 um, up to my heart rate jumping to 120 and I wasn't physically moving. So it would happen occasionally throughout college. I noticed it more often um, when I was being more physically active and testing my physical body's limits at different points with physical therapy and all of that. Um, and it was just sort of would build up from being something that would happen a couple times a month to then a couple times a week to then more regularly as time would go on. So um, on my end, sort of my hyper elasticity, I was always very double jointed and flexible. Um, I could... Definitely. Yeah, I, I, I could just, I can dislocate my joints and my wrists and everything. I can pop my shoulder muscles in and out. My IT bands are too long for my body, so they snap back and forth. So it looks like my hip joints pop in and out, but it's my IT bands snapping back and forth just with movement. Um, so the typical, I can twist my legs backwards and all that fun contortiony stuff. Um, where it does, I have no pain. <laughs> it's a fun party trick when you start jump roping with your arms for people. They're like, what are you doing? Um, so on my end, I just thought it was, um, my whole, my mom and my sister are both very flexible. I just, I was more hyper flexible than everyone else. Um, and sort of going through my illness, um, Ehlers-Danlos system is a type of connective tissue disorder where there's a hyper elasticity and production of collagen. So you're limbs and your muscles are very flexible. So my jaw can dislocate and my fingers can bend all the way backwards and all of that. Some people have hyperelastic skin, which can pull very far. Mine does not. Um, but there's different forms of EDS in that way. So I would be sent to a connective tissue specialist and for reasons of um, insurance coverage or how they did testing, um, they said, well, most likely you do, but we weren't going to go through the testing. Or if we test your stretch marks, it's going to show it's a stretch mark and it would go through that whole system. Um, So the big thing with EDS is there's a cardiac vascular version where um, if your vascular system is hyperelastic and has collagen, you it can rupture. So um, as one of my doctors so bluntly put it, oh, well, you could just have a spontaneous aneurysm and die, but we can't help you then, um, was how one of my doctors explained it to me. Yeah, doesn't that really highlight the lack of preventive care in our system? Yeah. And, and yeah, the bedside manner discussion. <laughs> yeah, do the testing. We're going to assume you've got this going on. <laughs> if you get the aneurysm, then we'll know for sure. But no discussion of, let's try Yeah. So, yeah, on that end. So especially with EDS, they if you're going to be more proactive, whether you get the proper diagnosis on paper or not, um, the cardiac route is getting tested with EKGs and um, echoes and all of that. So probably when I was about 19 or 20, I started going to a cardiologist regularly. Um, so that's more of like an annual checkup just on that end to make sure everything stays fine from the cardiac perspective. Um, because I'm able at this point with my hyperflexibility and all that, I'm able to maintain around it with wearing K-tape and braces and working out in a capacity that my physical therapists have shown me how to use my body. Uh, I don't run on treadmills. My hip muscles dislocate. So I use 
um, water rowers and um, electrical machines where I have more physical control. Um, so that was helpful in terms of the EDS undiagnosis. Um, I sort of, I guess on my end from having an invisible illness that wasn't diagnosed for a long time on my end, um, I, I found less power in gaining the term for myself. It was more, I felt more power in the proper medical treatment of just helping the side effects and the symptoms. So for me, because that's very different from a lot of experience. Yeah. Yeah. Because on my end, when I was younger, I needed that sense of community and explanation. So when people said, what's wrong, I was always saying, they don't know. Um, and that's not helpful in conversation when people are seeing you're missing, you're at a hospital, and you physically don't look sick, They don't, and you can't give them a rational explanation. It just adds on to everyone's confusion. Um, and so you have a less sort of, you feel like less of an authority in your own body. So... Um, yeah. So um, for me, as it kind of went on, I, I felt that because nobody was giving proper diagnosis and I didn't really have that because I never met anyone with chronic illness. And on that end, there wasn't, I wasn't having a community for many years. I didn't, I started to feel less and less important of gaining the diagnosis. For me, it just went, if, as long as you're treating it, as long as from the terminal side, as long as the sort of life altering side of it is we're taking preventative measure, that was good enough for me and I can build a life around it. Yeah. When you were younger, you needed the name, but as you get experience and, and wisdom, and yes, accelerated the adulting process. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You're able to refocus what you need. Yeah, yeah. And as a teenager, that lack of friend empathy—it was a lot of sympathy and pity of like, "Poor you, I'm so sorry." And you become very. People feel the need to constantly apologize that you're having to live your life the way you live it. Where I, I was very very vocal. Um, so I would then co- sort of come back at my friends going, why are you apologizing to me? This is yeah. like, you didn't do anything wrong. This is not my fault. It is not your fault. You didn't like whack me with the tennis ball. Like this is all there. It was dormant. I think it's fantastic because if, if more of us were able to have that attitude before stuff like this happened, you know, in a way it sounds like your ability to cope and to go through that grieving process and go through that that discovery process with your friends and family present has been, if not, I, I don't think easier is the word for it, but you, it, there's been a grace to the way that you've been able to navigate through it because you are already prepared to, to tell people that you have no pity bag. Yeah, and I think definitely on my end, it was a lot of, as I started getting older and because I sort of, I, I treated my health as sort of a secondary part of, my 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 life and my medical life and I tried to mentally separate them which obviously you have to you have to deal with later on because they are on my end they go hand in hand and I I built a nonprofit about it so naturally it became part of my day to day but for me it was I tried to help myself sort of coping through everything I looked at everything very logically so if my friends were starting to pull away, I was then having the logical response of going, well, in 10 years, are these the same people I would want to be, to have that friendship and actually invest the little healthy energy I have worrying about why they're upset I didn't show up to this event or go to this game or do these things. And if that's what's upsetting them, I don't want to invest the little amount of healthy time I have in this. Yes. So 
it was just right? it was just I was then becoming very logical of saying well if this is if this is how you're going to treat my chronic illness well then it's not worth my time on either end so it was really much just taking the logical side of going well this is why people are not very understanding and this is why things aren't so on my end I was trying I think more in a sense on my looking back now having hindsight of like 10 years having in the illness on my end it was just sort of trying to build the emotional buffer of being offended and being upset by people and you're just trying to build the buffer around you um and that kind of gives you the the tools in which but it's also a function you know like yeah we have to protect ourselves and as you say protect that precious energy because we've got fewer spoons that's just exactly and it's not something I had no television show besides Grey's Anatomy on one episode where they shouted out EDS one time. Much of invisible illness now, within the last three or four years, especially once since I launched Invisible, seeing more in the public eye discussing physical health and mental health in the invisible illness community. It's been more prevalent, but it still doesn't get the same. Um, attention that it deserves. There's no actor. I had nobody to point to my friends and go watch this show, look at this actor. There was nothing. So I had to then become, as I said, I had to become the medical encyclopedia, which on some days I would just, I would look at my friends and go, just Google it, even though that's the worst thing. I've got no, I have no time. I'm too tired. Yeah. Now, speaking of Invisi Youth, tell us how that came about, because it sounds like you already had an interest in journalism and philanthropic work, and that you didn't have the community you wanted as a teenager, and so you created that for other people. So tell us about what Invisi Youth is and how it's tied into your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Invisi Youth is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that works with teens and young adults around the world who have all types of chronic illness and disability. So we work across the visible and invisible illness spectrum and then physical and mental health. Since for many people and for pretty much most people, their mental wellness is affected when, with physical illness. They go hand in hand. While some people don't, don't remember that sometimes, it health is health. Um, so we do a lot in terms of lifestyle support so young people can have the tools, programming, um, virtual programming, and events in terms of fun events that they can have to thrive with illness. So for us, it's not waiting for health or waiting for the cure. You have to live tomorrow with your illness. So for us, we want the different ways of finding empowerment in yourself while you're working on your own health recovery in every capacity for it. So that was about, it'll be four years in June since we launched. Um, but on my end, obviously the name Invisi Youth came from the personal perspective of having an invisible illness um, and feeling like as a teenager and young adult straddling the pediatric adult healthcare timeline and transitioning throughout my process the older youth demographic um, is very neglected and they are quite invisible. They're not the kids in the St. Jude's commercials because I joke to our teenagers all the time, you guys aren't cute enough sometimes. <laughs> they always tell me, they're like, Dominique, we are not cute enough to be on the poster. And I'm like, I, I would, you're on our website. And they're like, well, you like us. That's why you're one of us. Yeah. Um, so, and they're not old enough to be in sort of the typical healthcare system commercials you'll see as well. So it is that weird invisible youth of community that I wanted instead of them feeling invisible they wanted them to feel invincible with their health and have that journey um so for us I while I was at um St. Joseph's University and I was a patient at CHOP 
um, naturally, as we all can hear, I'm very chatty and very mouthy. So my doctors all knew um, that I was very proactive. So I got introduced to, well, maybe we can test run you being a public speaker with the hospital and speaking at new employee orientations, which I did. Um, I still do. That's about seven years now. So I speak to hundreds of their new employees all the time about the patient-doctor relationship, especially for young adults. Um, yeah, it's gotten me opportunities to being a stakeholder on um, grants that have been published in research studies where I work with older youth um, for that demographic. So I get to work with a lot of older youth that are in the research grants and I get to be sort of their spokesperson to the research team because a lot of times some people forget that there are actual patients that their work is going to. Um, so trying to bridge that conversation. But I was always having, I was in multiple hospitals, outpatient, physical therapy, outpatient, So I was never in one physical place getting treatment, which is for most people, especially with invisible illness, because a lot of times it's rare disease in that whole community. You're bouncing around to so many specialists and places. Um, So for me, I knew I didn't really have one hospital as a home base. Um, And I knew that I was seeing so many teenagers while I was there bouncing in and out and always hearing doctors asking the same types of questions to me. I don't know how to talk to my teenage patients. They're always on their phones. What do you do when they ask me about why all these medical accessories aren't attractive enough for them to wear or why they're not wanting to do different types of treatment while they're in school, or I'm, I want to take them out for six months, but they won't do it. Why are they not agreeing to different things? Um, so it, for me, I was at hearing these same questions. And so for me, I was mentioning it while I was speaking with diff, some of my colleagues now. Um, and they said, well, you're going to school now to go into, I have bachelors of the arts in English writing and international relations. So Um, that's what I graduated with. So for me, I wanted to work with non-governmental organizations like UNICEF or refugee commissions, um, from sort of the state side of it. So they said, well, why, instead of working for a charity, you should just make your own at this point. Um, because you're seeing, looking for other nonprofits at that point going, well, there has to be some charity out here who works with the young adult community, not in one illness, but with all of them, because I wasn't, I didn't have proper diagnosis that, at that point, so I wouldn't fit into a charity's bubble um, with an illness. So for me, I kept looking, going, there's nothing here helping with the non-medical side of a life with chronic illness. There's nothing here. Um, so then I kept hearing, well, why don't you start your own? So um, that sort of became my mission as a senior at my university. Um, I like to joke to my friends that they had very relaxed and fun senior years of hanging out with each other on weekends. And I was driving back um, and forth meeting with accountants and lawyers and building in busy youth. Um, my entire senior year of what that would look like and the structure of it. So we launched a month after I graduated from college. Um, And so that and even within the first year of having health transitions that I was having, um, after the first year, we had like the whole restructuring of the charity. And I said, because if I was going to run this as the founder and have people work with me as consultants and young people come into the charity and our global brand leader program and noticing that our reach was going to stem outside of the States very quickly, um, as we did for me, it was important that the charity was malleable to me as the owner and that it would in that, in that way it would flex and flow with me. So if I had to take a step back physically from things there, it was going to run its course without me. 
in some ways. So after our first year, we really sort of did like a whole restructure and built everything virtually so that we were able to host physical fun events for free for young people inclusively to bring friends and siblings and their boyfriends and girlfriends with them for what we do is Invisi Youth meetups in the different cities that we're in. Um, and then also having virtual programming so we can have downloadable resources on our website. We have spotlight writing. We have our leadership program, which is our global brand leader program who get to work with me and my team um, in advocacy elements through um, social media marketing and um, advocacy campaigns and then also doing fundraising for the organization. And so now we're across the United States, Canada, all of the United Kingdom and Australia as of this year as well. Um, and really, I always say it was the young people right away kind of just jumping in. I say it was really just because it's they're so hungry for it. There's such they're able to connect with one another on social media so well that when we kind of stepped in as an organization and just said, we're, it's the non-medical side of life that you're living. It's everything that the doctors aren't telling you. That's us um, in lifestyle management. And it just sort of jumped right away. Of everyone with different types of illnesses were able to say, well, I have Lyme disease and then I have this cardiac mutation, but they both went to the same. They did both sports therapy because talk therapy wasn't their option. They both did sports therapy and then they're able to sort of connect with one another in that way. So for us, it was really important that, especially in the invisible illness community, so much of what we go through socially and emotionally is very similar, even though the diagnosis might be different. So for having the charity sort of represent that underrepresented community um, for the past almost four years now has been on my end, it's been the best thing getting to work with um, some of the, I always say they're the most deserving young people ever because they know how to adapt and grow based on their health. They're the best people to work with. This episode is sponsored by Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive because of my Hashimoto's and medications. And this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. The Wave was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. But because the technology is new, it can be pricey. So for those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And... Because you also listen to Uninvisible, they're offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Now, it sounds like you've got a very late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Tell me, because, I mean, this comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. My interview subjects. I want to know how you balance work and life, and what a day in the life of Dominique looks like, and how you're managing these ups and downs with the ebb and flow of your work. No, yeah, absolutely. I know that's that was why a big thing that we took that step back with my board and with our consultants when my health started to shift again in my 20s. A real big thing is that I'm able to work. Um, I work part-time in the publishing industry as well because having a nonprofit. I know, right? That's great. Fun fact. Um, but I, I like to say that because obviously it's a nonprofit. It's four, it's four years old. Um, so building that, I wanted to make sure that 100% of every donation and funds that are raised and sponsors that we get 
are going to our programming, our leadership programming, and our events. And since I'm young enough to to do that, yeah, I needed to have a second job. I say to pay the college loan. Um, so I was very fortunate that my um, the literary scouting firm that I work for in New York City. Um, I also do, we have a video podcast series and busy chat sessions and that records in New York City as well um, with a podcast studio that helps sponsor us, which is amazing. Um, so I'm in the downtown New York City area every week, but my, um, my boss in that area knew about my health and sort of had a meeting with me one day and said, okay, I've, I've heard you had this like chronic illness thing. I've read about it because I was interviewed a, m- a few times so she read about my health and she went, I don't really understand what medically is going on, but like, what are you physically capable of? Where are our barriers? Okay. And a lot of people hold this information back and share it. Yeah, I, I, I'm very fortunate that on my end, I sort of said, this is what I'm comfortable sharing. And the rest of it, it really wasn't going to affect my work. These were just sort of scenarios that could happen. So we made my work where it was flexible that I work from home a few days and I'm in the city a few days. And so on her end, it's been, I've worked with her about three or four years now on that side of it and in that publishing industry and having the ability of working home, which I know is so important for so many young people of being able to find jobs that have a virtual aspect to it. Um, because a lot of places don't publicly discuss that in terms of employment. It's a lot of it. You have to dig quite a bit. Um, so I was fortunate that while I was working with her, um, she's also a young female business owner and she was very supportive knowing that I had launched in busy youth right away when I was start working with her too. And so she knew that my days not with her are I'm working full time. Even when I'm commuting into the city, I am on emails with our British community and our Australian community. And when I'm coming home all the way out in Vancouver and California, I'm communicating with them on the way back. So for me, it worked out. I was just sort of structuring my day, but then knowing when I was physically having to be active, um, you learn, especially with an invisible illness that affects sort of more multi-organ systems in that way. Um, if you're going to physically exert your body, how can you kind of shift the week? So I kind of have to look out every week of, am I going to a lot of meetings? Am I being on, if I'm filming a podcast in the city, where am I going? There's different things. So sometimes I'm working in my home office. Sometimes I'm working from my bedroom and that's just the easiest way for me. Um, to do a lot of our work. Um, that was a big thing of why I wanted to make sure that the programming was very virtual because I was hearing from so many of our young people that they were homebound at different periods of time and they're in and out of hospitals or they're doing a lot of virtual work for their jobs. And so they said, I can't get involved in charities because it's not tangible for me all the time to be physically in an office or, or being able to go to an event or t- take something that was programming. So on my end, I wanted to make sure that when we built the video podcast series, it's filmed as a visual on our YouTube and it's audio on other podcasts. So that visual and hearing impairment community had different options for us, which was important so that even some people who were just more homebound, they could watch and feel that social connection of myself and our guests that are on watching us communicate with each other. So there was that social interaction um, but for me, it really was building my day to day really um, varies. I, I do like what I say is sort of my mental, my mental and medical check in every morning, I sort of wake up and sort of figure out where I'm at baseline, because sometimes my cardiac issues are the biggest struct- structure and issue. Other times it's way more brain fogging and nerve pain from like migraines that are more hemiplegic and on the left. 
So I, I kind of know, okay, I'm not going to be able to look at a screen much today. So let me do these sort of projects. So you kind of, I schedule everything out based on how I check in that morning, um, based on how it works for me. And that's where I'm able to sort of multitask in that way. Um, I, I say Google reminders on my phone is my best friend. I brain fog. I forget half the time. <laughs> I would have posted. If I could have stock and post it, I would make so much money. I, the charity would be in a hundred countries. <laughs> no, that's a really, really good point. And it's interesting that you're bringing up this idea of entrepreneurship as well, because much as, as creating a business is no easy task, for those of us who are determined enough to do it, um, I, it really does enable uh, those of us who need more accommodation work environment to really create our own work environment, you know, um, yeah. doing something through InvisiYouth, whether it's doing something on the charitable side, or even if you're running a for-profit business, if you're able to put the energy into creating your own work, using that as your platform, you know, that's really the way to do it. It's great if you can find employers who are able to make accommodation can create it for yourself that's yeah I think a big thing and well I'll always say it I've gotten to say it on the chat sessions and I'll say it when young people come to us as global brand leaders or volunteers and sort of dm the charity as well with in with employment especially in the invisible illness community you do have sort of the double-edged sword of the luxury of not explaining your health to people so you can kind of create your sort of safety net of community of coworkers in that world who they know and you kind of build parameters like I've done with my other job in terms of what they know I'm capable of in different ways of having a bad health day, things that can happen. But also I always say just being in terms of looking for jobs, I always say look at the companies that have corporate social responsibility programs that have foundations built into them. Every, every for-profit company is going to love and brag when they do philanthropic things. It will be the first thing you see when you Google them when you're on their website. So it's always going into where your interests are and then seeing the companies that are already actually doing the pay it forward mentality of work and naturally just sort of in an intrinsic way, they're going to hire higher-ups that are going to be more proactive and understanding and having that sort of in their backbone because it's part of the company. More sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's something that that's very easy to overlook when you're in the mire, when you're, when you're really in it and you can't sort of see the forest for the tree able to go, okay, there actually is a pathway to findings and finding work and, and sustain one's lifestyle. So Really being able to have the community that, that Invisibly created for young, especially at that stage where people are just starting to go. You know, yeah. Having that resource, having people like you who've been freeing for them. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot of, that's, it's just, it's definitely the age demographic of self-discovery of finding your own interests and then having to tackle a health condition on top of it, especially with an invisible illness where you're already knowing that from a visible standpoint, people can't comprehend your needs and you have to be very proactive in it where a lot I was, I'm except ironically, since I built a charity and I'm a public speaker, I'm very private about my health with people. I had friends from when I was 16 that had no idea. I had a chronic illness until they came to a fundraiser and they saw photographs because I would hide it. Um, because I had such a negative response from a lot of my friends, I started to keep a lot of my health to myself um, in that way. And I was very fortunate to have a very um, supportive and loving family. So I had that 
friend group of my friends that are still there from day one, but I've had friends who came back five or six years later and came to a fundraiser and heard me speaking or saw photos and said, I had no idea because I couldn't see anything. Um, and so it came back on their end of very reflective on their side of it going, there's so many things I wasn't understanding of, of what you were actually going through because I never asked how you were. Um, and so on that side, it was just really, uh, we'll be very proactive with young people just saying, ask your friends how they're doing, but be receptive to gaining a response. Don't just make it the colloquial, how are you? Fine. I'm good. How are you? Fine. But being, if you want the shoulder to lean on, you should also provide it too. And there's different ways of doing that, especially with invisible illness, you constantly have to explain to people what you need, what you like, don't like, how things are affecting your health. And so you have to be doing that whether they're ill or not, you know, because mental health thing. And it's very easy in a a culture that's sort of structured around get from point A to point B and do it as fast as possible. And yeah, you know, to, to be able to slow down. And actually, if someone says, how are you fully answer the question? I don't think any of us is taught to answer that question. Oh, absolutely. And well, I'll always just say the big thing that I learned from the charity that I constantly will say all the time, I feel like I repeat it so often, everyone keeps going, you need to put this on a t-shirt eventually, because you say it way too many times. It's just <laughs> that having, having a chronic illness, having an invisible illness or a disability and having happiness and success are not mutually exclusive. So I, I have a chronic illness and I'm also successful and happy. And so there's not, there's such a negative connotation that once you, once you get a diagnosis, once you're injured or you have an illness that it's, oh, it's negative. So it has to be affecting, you can't find a job negatively. Your friend group's affected negatively, your social life's negatively. And I'm going, well, I've, I have a whole new type of social network of people. I have my friends who are healthy and they remind me that on their Friday, it sucks because something happened at their job. And then they'll hear like, oh, how are you doing? Oh, well, I had a lot of tachycardia. I visually blacked out. I forgot what my boss said while she was talking with me. And they're going, oh, well, my problems don't compare. But to me, it's there are two different types of problems. Yeah. So, well, those are, so those are your healthy, able-bodied problems. These are my medical problems. So they're equal. They're just problems. But yeah, it's being able to have that. That's a really important thing to point out as well, because you know, having these disabilities or conditions doesn't make us holier than thou. It doesn't make (laughs) our able-bodied any less important. It doesn't doesn't lessen their day-to-day struggles. It's just that our day-to-day struggles are equal but different. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times I always say with my, um, even with my healthier, able-bodied friends, or even sometimes my sister will even mention it to me. That's uh, I'll think a lot of things are happening because of my health. Well, oh, maybe this opportunity for the, for invisible use not opening up. Oh, because I'm a, a boss with a chronic illness and I'm a founder with the chronic illness. And then sometimes my sister will have to give me that reality check going a healthy founder of a nonprofit would have the same problem you are having right now. So then it reminds me a lot of times we do think proactively on a sort of sub on like a self-conscious area, especially with an invisible illness. It is sort of that subconscious note of, is this sort of a judgment tone of, Oh, do they think I'm lesser than capable of something? Or sometimes it's, they would question me if I had no health issues as well. So it sometimes it's not your health issues being brought forward. It's us bringing them forward. Forward, and you have to sort of know your own barriers of how you're able to work. Well, and speaking of knowing your barriers, can you do you have any anecdotes you can share with us about uh, experiences you've had where you have been forced to justify the fact mm. that you have stuff going on to people stand it? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Even just sort, even, especially even within Visi Youth, when I would be giving sort of public speaking engagements in front of medical communities or at universities, and I'm being brought in within Visi Youth, um, I would be brought in with sort of my whole backlog of photos. And I have some very visibly the, the poor hospital photos where I say it's like the ASPCA dog. It's the one photo I have from my back surgery. I look very, very cutely pathetic in this photo. And every time you will hear the awes from the crowd right away. And I know I require that picture to post. <laughs> Everybody knows this photo of me. I, I don't even have to turn around. I go, oh, yep, it's that photo that's popped up behind me. I already know by the reaction. But a lot of people will start to then question sort of my capability of running as a as a typical founder, like other founders are, because well, you have health struggles and you have good and bad days. But I also then I will then have to justify, well, I've obviously I've built the nonprofit to be adaptive to me. Every program's adaptive to our brand leaders who come in. It's flexible to them. We build everything by that book. That's why everything takes sometimes it takes longer because I then have to start justifying structurally the charity's flexible breathing room of why it doesn't look like other nonprofits or sound like other nonprofits. But that was because I have a chronic illness and I have to run it where people will then question, oh, is this, is, does this make sense? Are, are you secure enough? If something happens, who come, who is second in command to you? That I, ask that question if you can. I, I do. I, I've run into that when I, especially given my age, I, launching the charity at 22, um, walking into meetings for sponsorships with corporations and being a public speaker and obviously being a female and looking younger. Um, there, You could immediately hear the sort of slight chuckling, the size of, oh, is she capable? And which is natural for just female entrepreneurs, especially when I'm 20 to 30 years younger than other nonprofit founders or directors. And I always say, give me 30 seconds and then you'll pay attention. Because the other side of that is that you're so driven and and the drive, whether you're able-bodied or or invisibly ill, the drive is no different, is it? Yeah. Yeah. And if people will sort of challenge, I, I always say my biggest piece of advice is if people start to challenge my capability because I have a chronic illness, so I have naturally bad days medically, that there might be health setbacks. I'll always say that on my end, I said, well, you're not going to find my hardworking or flexible or adaptive nature in a healthy and able-bodied employee or in a healthy, able-bodied founder because I've had to wake up and be at 12 o'clock and all of a sudden have complete neuropathy in my leg and I still have to walk around New York and I have no physical sensation and I have to adapt how I'm walking on the spot. That's And I said, so I'm constantly learning how to adapt and be successful because my health has trained me to deal with the biggest types of roadblocks medically, just my own body. Um, and so I said, I'm, but it's not, it's not a disability. It's actually yeah. a superpower. Exactly. I said, I'm, I'm the one who can adapt and change to any sort of issue you would throw at us because I've had to do it just on my day to day. So for me, my chronic illness is a benefit to you. And when people start to see that you look at it through a positive lens and not the sort of negative melancholy scope that general mainstream media puts it in, um, that's what that makes you successful because you're using it as a strong suit going, yeah, I have bad days. So do you, but this has made me 
work three times harder. I have seven ways of adapting to a problem where somebody else would have three. And it makes you the ideal employee too, because when you think about it, we're all taught in the workplace not to come to a, a boss with a problem unless we've got a solution. And when yeah. you're ill, you're always solution-based, aren't you? You know, like there has to be that positivity. But it also sounds like partially because you had that trial by fire as, as a very young person being ill, but also it sounds like you've just naturally got a very positive point of view and you've been able to get to that, that place. Um, rather yeah. than at a young age, you know, accelerating this experience of becoming an adult that you've been able to really look at the experience and, and find the positivity very clearly. And yeah. And I think in a big way, I say um, this, one of um, the one people that we've worked with quite a bit, I mention her all the time. She's a British motivational speaker and she's a burn survivor, Catherine Pugh. Um, She came on to our video podcast and we talked about, well, if you're feeling uninspired or there's a lot of negative things going on and and your health is really bad, you're just having a horrible day. Um, On my end, I, you always, everyone says, oh, well, you look at the bright side and I, oh, well, you have the chronic illness. So like, oh, you are, you're naturally more like closer to God and how you think because like you've had to struggle. So you look at everything better. Um, on my end, we, I even spoke with Katrin and it's this sort of mentality of like a controlled wallowing period where I will, if, if it's happening and I know I'm, it's just, I'm feeling very bad. I'm feeling bad for myself at that point with my health and it's not working. I give myself my allotted less than one hour, I will put on my Alanis Morissette or Adele music. That's very sad. And I will live, I will allow myself to feel very sorry for myself and think this is the worst thing. My my body hates me and just go through it. And then when that time's over, it's done. I've allowed myself to express it. And I say, okay, well now you have to move on. Logically, you still have to continue the rest of your hours of your day. This is such a healthy approach mentally because I think so many of us struggle to either expressing ourselves, mm-hmm. to say, I'm going to give myself permission, not just to express myself, but to really go there and yeah. concentrate on going there. And you just get it out. It's like having that really good cry, you know, and just yeah. get it out. So it sounds like you've got a very healthy approach to allowing those ups and downs to come. Yeah. And when people say you constantly are trying to, you're trying to work through the bad days, that'll start to continue to build up, especially with an invisible illness where no one's giving you that immediate support that you need because they can't see it. And you, and sometimes you just don't have the energy to start asking for it, especially if you live alone or you have roommates or anything, you just don't have the physical energy to ask people to come to you and support you. And you feel like that's somewhat of a burden to them, which a lot of times that people will have, especially with invisible illness. So on, that's why on my end, it was very important to just say, well, no, if I'm really having a bad medical day, I have to kind of give it to myself and just say, okay. Uh, allow it because that by saying those feelings aren't warranted I'm only saying that positive feelings are warranted and that's just not not gonna it's not gonna make the good days good because it there for me to have good days I have to know what a bad day feels like in order to know what a good day feels like I think that's part of the the, the learning experience any kind of it is blown mm-hmm. you really learn like you don't have the flowers without the rain you know like yeah you just don't you don't have the sunshine without the clouds like all of that stuff really make starts to make sense in a whole new way so it's it's yeah. cool to hear that someone like you who's an advocate and an example to so many has really taken that on and you're sharing that with people so kudos to you for that <laughs> thank you <laughs> so how important is it 
that we keep talking about invisibles. And I want to look at this in the perspective or the the um, rubric of our healthcare system. Um, <laughs> you've had insurance issues, you know, um, and trying to navigate those pathways. How what what is the power of advocacy? In a world like this, um, in a healthcare system, where do you see us creating change, creating positive change? Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the invisible illness spectrum, a lot of it really just stems into your even your medical professionals, those clinicians. They're not they're not seeing it in their downtime as well. Just from a strictly mainstream media, there aren't characters on television shows or films, even with a visible illness or disability, that's very uncommon, especially having accurate casting of somebody who's in a wheelchair being played by an actor in a wheelchair. And you don't see that very often. So there's not even sort of the subconscious narrative around society of seeing it as somebody who needs to function daily. Um, And it's not just providing end of life care because they're sick. It's people have to function for decades and decades and decades of life with a lot of these chronic illnesses. So you have to show that way, the ways that people can thrive in life and build a life for themselves. So even from just mainstream media discussion, we'll always say seeing more of public figures having somebody like Selena Gomez talking about having lupus and having an invisible illness and her discussing that fluctuation all the way to somebody similar to a, a Debbie Gibson having Lyme disease or Avril Lavigne building her foundation with Lyme disease as well and showing that narrative of why somebody has left the spotlight and come back in and showing that discussion. There's more people that can then relate and point to other siblings they might have had or every I always say everybody knows everyone has a there's there's no six degrees to Kevin Bacon here everyone has a one degree to chronic illness in their in their scope it's either a direct connection to yourself your siblings or parents or relatives or it's somebody who you work with and you'll then notice it in one of their children or their siblings or their spouse there always is a direct connection it's just because there's not very public discussion on chronic illness, it feels like it should be a negative, sad connotation. So especially within busy youth, that's something that I'll really proactively say to a lot of young people is actively say that to your doctors that you want to thrive and function. So how is what you're asking me to do? How can we adapt that to what I need to do in my life. The big thing I always said to my doctors and now has kind of become a phrase in the charity is how can we compromise this medical situation without compromising my health and let's meet in the middle because we can all find a way to kind of meet in the middle without compromising my health, but we're still sort of compromising what medically we're allowed to do based on healthcare coverage or insurance coverage even especially within busy youth, we work in countries where there's national healthcare services and sort of the combination of the two as well. So you really, what I always say is there's such a proactive nature, especially with young adults, getting to speak to one another, seeing all forms of treatment plans, allowing traditional medicine and integrative medicine to start becoming more verbally proactive. That was a big thing for me of having so many young people coming to the charity saying, I finally asked my doctor about acupuncture and different types of integrative medicine programs, even that are now being built into hospitals as an outlet for them um, and asking very proactively, can I try this? Can I try this? And always I saying the big, the big three letter question is always ask why when you're with a doctor and they're not 
a lot of times it could be an insurance issue. It could be just sort of your medical structure, but you have to be able to ask why, and they have to be able to tell you an answer or say, I don't know right now. Let me get back to you. Let me have a PA get back to you, a nurse get back to you. But ask the question of why if you're being told, well, we shouldn't go down this road or we shouldn't do this treatment plan. No, you wouldn't qualify for this. Ask why, because sometimes you then can become proactive in calling your insurance company and figuring out the actual why of certain things might not be getting covered. But a lot of people don't want to, they're asked, they're told no, and then they leave it. So that proactive nature of just asking people why is the biggest thing. I told doctors in my speaking events when I speak to new clinicians, um, do you ask your teenage patients why they're saying no to a treatment plan or why well, one, one specific example was I had a 17-year-old that was volunteering with my charity who had cancer and her doctors had mentioned it that she was very, they wanted her to go back into chemotherapy. She was graduating and I knew from a social element was because she didn't want to start going through that whole process of physical changes of hair loss or going through the physical repercussions of chemotherapy. And so she wanted to delay it a few weeks. And she didn't tell them that. And they were in this sort of lock-horned conversation. And I remember saying it when I mentioned it in a speaking event. The doctor said, well, well, that was just her being um, antagonistic towards the doctor. And I said, well, the doctor should have asked her why. And she would have told you, and then you would have said you could do X, Y, and Z leading up to it. You could delay things differently for her. Yeah, I said, as medical professionals, they they definitely have to be proactive. I'm very fortunate to, I always say it, to have a mother who's a nurse who is, I say, always very protective and very proactive with her patients and always make sure that they ask the right questions and asking them, do you have questions for me? You should ask doctors different questions and being surrounded by empowered medical professionals that I've come into contact with. And then also on my end, I've gone to 47 at this point is my lucky fun um, special, special amount of doctors I've been sent to. And it's that's probably not too bad. <laughs> right? It's double my age at this point, probably. Um, but on that end, it's definitely a lot of them never, they never asked how I was. Um, and to think of having 47 doctors, and I can probably name five to eight of them who stood out and actually asked, why don't you want to do certain things? How are you feeling with this? What do you think of this treatment plan? And it's having the medical community actually start to communicate back to their patients because there is this weird invisible wall between them that nobody wants to speak to one another. Young adults feel discomfort with some medical professionals and they feel discomfort with young adults because they communicate differently. And you kind of, you have to find a way of meeting in the middle and asking each other why and how is the best way of doing that to then provide the best care that you learned in medical school and the best way that they live their life with an illness. And it's that empowerment that you mentioned, which we don't hear often because we presume that because someone's gone to medical school that they're feeling empowered, but they may be feeling just as helpless as you. Mm -hmm. Know how to how to communicate you and that's that just goes to show such a wonderful tip really which leads me into I, I end these interviews with a top couple of top three lists and I wanted to ask you what your top three tips are for someone who thinks they may be about to enter the invisible illness world or is in the midst of it and and feeling like they can't navigate it what are your top three tips for people in that position particularly for you people 
<laughs> For young adults, the number one thing I'll always say is to be kind to yourself. It's the, it's the hardest thing for young adults across the health spectrum, healthy and able-bodied all the way into chronic illness and disability. We're often very hard on ourselves as young adults um, and feel that weaknesses can't be tuned into looking at them as comebacks from setbacks. And you have to sort of give yourself those moments of it's okay to not be okay. Be kind to yourself. I always say if you're feeling very sort of that self-loathing mentality and feeling very sad for what's going on medically, what would you say if this was, if you were a friend of yours, what would you tell them to do or how would they react? If you would tell your friend, take a minute, breathe, you're going to get through this. We can get into, we can just get you to tomorrow. Focus on today. That's what you should then be saying to yourself. If you wouldn't tell your friend life sucks, just lay down and be, feel sorry for yourself. If that's what you would tell your friend, that's not what you should say to yourself. Mm-hmm. So just be kind to who you are and know that you're allowed to feel all sort of spectrum of emotion when it comes to a diagnosis process. It's a very confusing one for anybody. Um, being Be your own advocate. Don't expect anyone to be an advocate for you. You can only build a team of advocates and sort of build your network of support by you being an advocate, whether that's a very verbal proactive advocate like I am. Everyone thinks that if you say be an advocate, it's I'm standing on a soapbox. I'm proactively asking questions. There's all different forms of advocacy. You can be one of the quietest patients and just bring out a list of questions. You've researched, you've looked up different alternative treatments. You've spoken on different, you've come into Invisi, you've, you've met people from different countries with different illnesses. You have all different types of ideas and write them down and you can hand that to a doctor. You can call and ask, can I email ideas to you so I can come into the appointment and we're both on the same page. And that's less verbal proactive advocacy, but you have to be the one advocating for your own health more so than anyone else. You can't expect your parents or your guardians to do that more so than you. Everyone kind of has to be supporting you to advocate for yourself because it is your health at the end of the day. It's your name on the chart. Absolutely. I think those are such good pieces of advice and you've shared so much. In the realm of advice for people, I feel like people are going to get so much out of this. <laughs> now, also, I, I'm presuming because of your various conditions, you've had to make some lifestyle changes to mm-hmm. accommodate treatments and knowing maybe you have food sensitivities or exercises that you've had to work around with your physical therapists and stuff. And I'm wondering if you ever cheat. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) And if so, what your favorite, like, top three indulgences or comfort activities flare up? What are are things that you you turn to that just make you happy? Oh, yeah. I, I joke mostly because I have my background as a competitive athlete that when it came to physio and the trained sort of mentality of, especially with RSD, that there was, there is such a, there's a chronic pain element to it and you have to work through pain. Your mind sort of is, becomes very accustomed to feeling uncomfortable. And it's that physical pushing barrier of my competitive athlete nature. Anytime I'm doing physical therapy or going to a gym um, that I'm at, I usually, all of my trainers at the gym are aware of my health. Nobody, none of the other people who are there with me know. I wear a heart monitor to watch myself um, to be safe on that end. The trainers are aware of my health as well. So obviously if I'm sort of stumbling and I'm visually kind of passing out, they know what's happening. Um, and on that end, but I do even 10 years into it, I still will push my potty because it's just that competitive athlete nature where sometimes 
even the trainers will go, I think you should just sit down. I'm like, no, no, it's 15 minutes left. Everyone else is doing it. I should do it too. And they're like, Dominic, take a break, sit down, <laughs> bring some water. I don't want to see you jumping on a water rower. Like, sit down. It's no, no secret that you're a go-getter, that's for sure. <laughs> and even just sort of on the relaxing side of it, having the English writing background, I've always loved reading. That was probably one of the um, more, most frustrating things was visually sort of having issues of sensitivity to reading on screens and everything. And I liked tangibly holding books. So getting a Kindle and having it read to me, I was always, no, 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 no. I need the old school, take a book, feel the paper kind of a girl. So some days it was just, if I have to put sunglasses on to read this book, I am going to do it for myself. And if you're wearing those Google glasses to look at a screen or you're looking at a book with sunglasses, for me, it's massively cathartic. So on that end, it's been very helpful. And ironically, going into acupuncture and having it with her, um, she's really sort of brought in I say it's sort of, it's easy, it's it's basic, it's like old school girl basic ways of meditation. It's not like hardcore, I'm out there for an hour kind of meditation, but it's really mindfulness of just being calm. And so for me, it's less than five minutes. Even if I'm waking up in the morning or going to bed, it's just sort of repetitive, focusing on my breathing. I'm very chatty. I cannot get my brain to stop talking to me. So the whole idea of calming my mind and turning it off, it'll last five seconds and my brain will go, oh, I think you forgot to do something. Wait, hold on. Write that down. What did you say again? And my brain starts going again. So it's really just sort of, I knew I wasn't capable of a long-winded meditation or calming sensation on that end, but it was really knowing five minutes I can do. And just knowing that it was a small of me time, whether that's listening to music for five minutes. I have a playlist on my computer of my guilty pleasure is Hallmark Christmas movies, just because why not? Yes. Yes. I have a mug that says that I watch those 100%. When they come on in October, I'm like, get skip Thanksgiving. It is Christmas. Couch potato for two months straight. It's fantastic. Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent. All of in college, if I was writing papers and it took me longer because of my health. So if I felt better at eleven o'clock at night, I was starting to write papers at eleven o'clock because that's when my body felt better. So then I might do it then, or it was in the middle of the day. And if I had so much physical pain going on on my end, it was okay. I'll just put on a Christmas Hallmark movie, and I can, I can turn off everything else and just. Yeah watch. I know it's going to be a happy ending and I'm happy. Just let your brain go. You don't have to. Yeah. I mean, it is sort of meditative, isn't it? Because you let the narrative take you somewhere else. Exactly. So for me, it is those weird sort of calming, guilty pleasure elements. I have music playlists for different things. There's either listening to other podcasts on that side that are more calming. It's I have what are more my medical breaks throughout the day. If I'm medically feeling that I can't continue doing emails or I have to get up and move or something's going on. I have things that are sort of my treats to myself, whether that's watching, I like soccer. So I watch premier league soccer, whether that's fun videos of that on commentation or watching 
different clips of like Expedition Unknown for National Geographic things or watching my Christmas Hallmark movies because I love them. Um, and it's just sort of giving my, it's sort of my little treats to myself that I've pushed my health to a different limit. So then I can at least give myself a little five or 10 minute break and then go back into work. But it gives me time to stretch out my hand, put heat on, do something that will help with my pain from a neurological standpoint. Do I have to dim my screens? If I have to start medically tailoring, I kind of treat myself while I'm doing it instead of being frustrated of, oh, I have to take 20 minutes because I can't look at this computer, my hand locked. Yeah, so for me, while I have to take the medical breaks, especially throughout the day, I'll do things that are more calming on my end, finding different TV shows. I Obviously, working for teens and young adults, they always keep me very up to date on what's fun for them. So there's... Um, there's a whole network of television shows called Stom, which is a Norwegian show that's now in about 10 different countries. They have an American version. So it started in Norway. They have a Dutch version. They have a, they have a French version, Italian version, Spain version, Belgian version. It's everywhere. Um, but working with young adults, they'll always tell you about fun new shows and how it pops up different ways. So that was always a, that was a fun find within our first month of Invisible. I had somebody from the UK sort of being, oh, this helps me when I'm in the hospital because they drop clips every day of the week. So it's my little treat to myself during treatment. They would watch these different clips because they came out every day. So it was sort of finding things like that and being able to treat myself in the times that my body was mistreating me, as I'll say. Um, it was that was sort of my best um, pat on the back to me when I would have bad health moments. It's giving you a positive structure, what Yeah, and that took a long time. A lot of times, it was I would become very ad- it was very agitating if I had emails to do and I'm sitting there and I couldn't move my limbs. It would just be very frustrating, and I would start getting very upset. I, if I was healthy, if I had two good hands, I could do X, Y, and Z. And you have to sit here and stare at a computer because you can't move your hand. And it would become very frustrating. So for me, it was just, I was tired of being frustrated multiple times during the week. Um, so then it, that was my shift of, okay, well, while I have to do some PT on my hand for 20 minutes to loosen my muscles, I can watch this on, on my phone. I can do this on the computer. And then it was it was more entertaining for me while I subconsciously was doing what my body needed it to do. Very similar. I mean, you think about all these um, exercise machines at the gym that have screens where you put yeah. your, your phone into so people can listen to it. They want to listen to mm-hmm. or or like watch an episode of Friends or something while they're on the bike mm-hmm. so that it does take your mind away from the grueling aspect of that work. You know, so we're people are doing that. Able-bodied people are doing that all day. Why mm-hmm. can't you? Um, and I think that's just a really smart strategy that you put together for yourself. Yeah, I'm just owning what owning what you medically adapt with. I go to the gym. My whole entire left side is braced up in all black sort of braces. I look like I'm going to war on the left side, and I'm healthy on the right. And so everybody knows because I'm coming in with knee braces, hand braces, elbow braces, and also because of you don't. There's a lot of sensory noises of how loud music can be in a gym. I wear earplugs when I'm at the gym. Um, so for me, they're actually, they're, um, lighter. I'm practically albino looking because I'm so pale. Um, so they're very light skin toned to me. So most people don't even know I'm wearing them, but for me, it was something easy. I actually had one of our brand leaders mentioned it, that they do it, um, in, at one of their physical therapy places, um, because it was easier for them. So then they mentioned it to me. And so now I use it, but it was just, 
kind of owning if I wanted to do something a lot of my healthy, able-bodied friends were doing. I just kind of had to find the adaptations that then allowed me to do it. Um, so I joke Tylenol and K-Tape are in my bag at all times. Hot hands, po- portable hot hands. I have those on me all year round, even when it's not cold. Little mini hot hands, I rip those open and hold those so it brings some heat back into my hands because with a lot of touch screens, when my hand's too cold, I can't open it. I can only touch with my right hand. Um, so that's fun. Um, so it's just sort of finding things that you can kind of keep as sort of your medical toolkit with you all the time. Yeah, and having the community friends. Yeah about you know what's working for them so that you can find new things that might work for you if you've sort of exhausted all of the options that you've come up with as well yeah well Dominique this has been so wonderful I'm so glad we've had you on the show can you tell our guests where they can find you and InvisiYouth on the worldwide internet sure um so you can find us at InvisiYouthCharity.com and we're on social media at Twitter Instagram and Facebook at InvisiYouth um, and then our video podcast series in busy chat sessions is on our YouTube channel. And then we're on pretty much all podcast networks from iTunes, Spotify, Google play, Stitcher, all of those. If you look up in busy chat sessions, I'm sure you will find it everywhere you are. Dominique, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to seeing what everyone gets out of uh, this discussion with you and Thank you for the incredible advocacy work you're doing for, for young people. And, and it's not just young people, actually, because <laughs> I'm in my 30s and I'm getting plenty out of this. <laughs> <laughs> no, and thank you so much for sort of building a whole podcast dedicated to us, the invisible illness community and making them very visible and prominent and stuff and letting people share their journeys. That's the best ways of learning from is learning from one another. So I can thank you as well for building a podcast that allows people to hear the invisible community stories that need to be shared oh, and how great is it that we found each other too and now everyone find us both. exactly yeah well dominique thanks again and i look forward to having you back yes thank you so much <laughs> That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.